0: I'm currently in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The weather is perfect. Crisp in the morning, warm in the afternoon, and the sunsets are some of the best I have ever seen. Next weekend, our plan is to head about four hours south to White Sands National Park, which is a huge 275 square mile expansive desert. More specifically, these wave-like dunes of gleaming white sand. In photos it could almost be mistaken for snow you know that first day when everything is perfectly blanketed and pristine i didn't know there was anywhere quite like white sands on earth so i'm excited to experience it in person in other news chef and restaurant owner rose previtt is my guest this week raised in a food-loving sicilian lebanese family in ohio rose's career began in her mother's middle eastern catering business Her own first endeavor, Compass Rose, is a restaurant inspired by the extensive travel she did while living in Russia with her husband, who was posted there as a correspondent for NPR. Since then, Rose has opened a second critically acclaimed restaurant in DC called Maydan, which earned a Michelin star in 2019. This episode is a roving trip through Rose's family history and her culinary ventures at home and abroad. Rose and I discuss the ways identity and culture are expressed through our cuisines, the amazing food-focused trip through North Africa and the Middle East Rose took with her Maidan team, and the experience of revisiting Lebanon with her twin aunts, who, like many second-generation immigrants of their age from that part of the Middle East, were returning to their maternal homeland for the very first time in their 70s.
1: Well, I'm really excited to speak to you. Thank you for having me. This, like Chloe was telling me, you know, all about um, Marcus's interview with you and just, you know, how cool it was. So I, I, now that we're traveling again, I, cause I asked her, I was like, what should we do? We can talk about traveling again. And she brought you guys up right away and it seemed like a cool fit. So thank you.
0: Yeah. It's so fun speaking to chefs. I feel like you guys have a really interesting way of traveling and you pay so much attention to detail and have such a reverence for culture and heritage. So you always have really interesting perspectives, which I appreciate. I always like to start off by asking, where did your love of travel originate? I know right away.
1: I studied abroad in Granada, Spain during my junior year in college, and I became obsessed. I knew I was never looking back. <laughs> I was I had been bitten by the bug. I went for six months and lived in Granada and had one of the most magical experiences I could have ever hoped for. I still don't know sometimes why I left. It was so amazing. I was actually telling, I got my hair colored this morning and Madison, my amazing colorist, I was honestly just telling her the story as we were talking about places we wanted to live when we were older. And I swore
0: to everyone that I would eventually go back to the south of Spain, you know, so. Oh yeah, that's a special place for you? Yes, that was the one. That was the one. And I know that your mom is Lebanese and your dad is Sicilian. Yes. So I'm imagining when you were growing up, you were just eating a lot of delicious food. Like all we did was eat? Yes, that is (laughs) (laughs) correct.
1: Yeah, we did. It was funny because the cultures have such a similar passion for food, even though they're different parts of the world. Both of my parents, I think, honestly, one of their first connections was over food and the love of cooking. It was kind of their love story, actually. And then instilled it in us very early on. And I'm the oldest and started cooking with my mom very young. We did a lot of Middle Eastern food out of our house. But then, you know, it got so popular with like friends and neighbors that we ended up um, making it an actual catering business out of our home, where we started to do weddings and graduation parties and things like that. And then my father as a lawyer, to be clear, but he was the first person in his family to go to college. And I have this feeling that he felt guilty about it because my grandfather, who's from Sicily, had like our immigrant American story is this little grocery store in New Jersey that he opened many, many years ago. It was a butcher shop. They had produce. He was the butcher and the owner. And that's kind of like how my dad could afford to go to college. And my dozenly child, and he didn't take the family business because he did go to college and he went off to be a lawyer. And I think he always felt really guilty about it. And so his little outlet for his love of food and that experience with my grandfather was on the weekends of my entire childhood. We would sell Italian sausage sandwiches. If you are familiar from any carnival, like on the East Coast, but you get like a hard roll with like an Italian sausage, link peppers, onions, and tomato sauce. In rural Ohio, where I grew up, that was not a common thing. And so we went to all the fall festivals, the county fair, you name it. And we would sell them, but we had to make everything also in our house. And to be clear, my house was not big. So what we were creating was kind of insane because he would get an actual like whole, we would get like a whole hog situation. He would butcher it. We would grind it. I mean, we did it from like, ground from the zero to sausage sandwiches. And then we'd sell like 300 on a Saturday. And um, it was it was like a known thing that everybody looked forward to. And so it was like, you know, we were street hawkers of Italian sausage sandwiches (laughs) um, on our weekends as kids. It was like a very bizarre food beginning. And then my mom, you know, I have to mention, I'm so proud of her. She didn't get a brick and mortar restaurant until she was 60, six zero. Um, And then she had a
0: cafe for 10 years. Yeah. So I'm really proud of her. Oh, I love to hear that. And you said you grew up in Ohio, right? In a small town called Ada. Is that how you say it? Good job. Yes, I did. Yeah. (laughs) There's a small university there where my dad ended up, he went to law school there and stayed to teach. Yeah. Okay. And what was that place like for you? What was it like growing up in a small town? It was, you know, a beautiful place to grow up. I have really fond memories
1: of, you know, a really, having a village to to teach me everything that saying about it takes the village. I really did have a village of beautiful people who taught me so many things and looked out for each other, but it was a place that was not incredibly diverse. And so to bring in food and cultures that were unfamiliar is always something that is, you know, difficult at times. And it's one of the things you look back on and you realize how valuable it was, but at the time it was difficult. And uh, back then, the internet is not prevalent. The food channel doesn't exist. You know, now a lot of people where I grew up know a lot more about Lebanese food and Southern Italian food, but back then they didn't. And so we were really kind of groundbreaking. And, you know, my mom was insistent on teaching lessons as I mean, most moms are, but she was like, you know, this is how we're going to teach people about our culture. You, It's food. This is our gateway. This is all, this is how we tell people who we are. So, you know, at home it was, form of communication, we cooked together, we ate together as a family every night. When I think back to how many home cooked meals I had from scratch, though my mom had four kids, I, I have truly no idea now as an adult how she did it, but that was this big part of our family unit. And then our extension to the the neighborhood and to to the town was like, this is who we are. We feed you. And this is where we came from. And so now that's very powerful. It took until high school for people to really get it. You know, then kids started to realize, oh, it's we get a lot of food. We get good food at Rose's house. So it's cool to go to Rose's house. But early on, (laughs) it was really hard to explain. And, you know, we would make food that like left our clothes smelling like garlic and onions and go to school like that. And like you knew you were different, but I appreciate it
0: all now. I don't know if you've ever listened to the podcast Armchair Expert, the it, the host of Dax Shepard, the actor and, um, and Monica Padman, who's his co-host. And I was listening to an episode the other day and Monica, who she has, she's of Indian heritage, but she grew up in like a small town in Georgia. And she was saying that it makes her really sad now to reflect back on when she was young because she was like so almost like ashamed of her family's food and sort of rejected it and would always be like, I don't want the curry. I want mac and cheese. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And it makes her so sad looking back on it now. But I think, you know, food is such a huge part of how we express ourselves and our culture. And I think maybe it can emphasize the feeling of being other when we're in that delicate adolescent phase.
1: Other is the word I use all the time. We just didn't have a, a category. I think, you know, I often was just asked if I was Mexican-American because I had this dark hair, dark eyes, dark skin, nobody, they just didn't know what other options there could be, right, you know, I got, I was never offended by that, but you know, you have to constantly correct and then you start to feel like an other because you're like, what category do I fit into? And I am, yeah, those stories I can relate to so much. I think hers might've been mac and cheese. Mine was pizza and Mountain Dew. I wanted (laughs) store-bought pizza and Mountain Dew and my mother would never let me have it. Instead, people came over and we had like, you know, Sunday sauce with pasta or raw lamb for Kibbe like that was just what she was gonna do. But I can remember begging Mountain Dew and pizza from a store. <laughs> from a restaurant, <laughs> a cool. Because like we would make pizza every Friday night. And you know, my, gran- my grandfather lived with us too. So we also had, you know, a lot of that food culture from his butcher shop. You know, we grew up with it. He helped make the sausage and, and all those things, but pizza every Friday night. So we only made homemade pizza and all I wanted was restaurant pizza. <laughs>
0: so funny. And I know your mom, she grew up in Detroit, right? So she probably had access to a bit more of um, like a Middle Eastern population and the culture and the food. And then she ultimately decides to set up this catering business and you guys do it together. What was it like working with her? And, and you know, how did that work? How did she get along? I mean, we, I only laughed because of course it was, you know, complicated, but we
1: didn't know another way. I mean, we just always cooked together. It wasn't a big change when we went to catering because she had actually been making a lot of food for free for so long in large batches. So like tabbouleh for three hundred, and you know, shish, you know, chicken shish skewers. I mean, our little kid hands were like skewering meat <laughs> from the time they could, We could figure it How out. How old were you when you did this? Oh, I mean, I can remember cooking with her since I was five. I wasn't useful. For that much until I was like seven or eight yeah I was always you know I did I cooked with her and I baked a lot with my dad because he was more into baking but I Yeah, I would say not that going to the catering just basically meant she actually made a little bit of money as opposed to just giving it all away, which was like her first choice. But then she got asked to do things like, you know, cooking demos at the fair. I remember she did one cooking demo at the Hardin County Fair on how to cook with lamb because it was a rural area. And she said she first moved there from Detroit. She saw sheep everywhere, but she couldn't go to the store and find it. And she was so confused to the point that my dad started buying them at the county fair at livestock auctions because you couldn't just go to the store and buy lamb back then with like the cuts and stuff that we needed. So we would just actually buy whole animals from farmers. But then in a, to try to educate people like, hey, you you farm, you're, you're farmers, you have these animals, you actually can use them and this is how. So she got asked to do things like that, go to schools, to my Girl Scout troop, you know, all of that stuff and we would do cooking classes. But the really only difference with the catering was that she actually got money for it
0: as opposed to giving it away. <laughs> Oh, amazing. And I love what you said about her saying that food is the way that we teach people about who we are. Do you remember when you first started to think about cooking as something personal that you wanted to share with the world and be like, I think I want to make this my career?
1: I always thought that's what we do. We even talked about as a family, opening a restaurant. And I was not, I was there at the beginning of her restaurant But I was already older and living, you know, I was only there at the beginning and then I moved to Washington full-time. So there had always been this idea that there was going to be a family business. And then there was, but I, I couldn't stay around to help. And so... I thought I would do it my own way one day, and I kept saying, I'll do it later, I'll do it later. So I went to college, I went to graduate school, I got a master's in public policy. I worked in government, but I always bartended or served it. I was always working in a restaurant the entire time. Um, I met my husband, I was his waitress at a bar in Capitol Hill. Like It was just always a part of my life, and I just kept thinking that I would do it later. But then I started to think about how my mom did it at 60 and it was not too late, but like she didn't get to enjoy it as much. And so when I was actually living in Moscow in Russia for three years is when I really started to synthesize the idea and make it a real like become obsessed with thinking about it and knew that when I would go home, um, when we get back to the States, that I would most definitely, you know, open my own restaurant. But it was always in the back of my mind. It was just like the do it later thing. I'd love
0: to talk more about your experience in in Russia because you were there for three years with your husband, who's a a correspondent for NPR is that right
1: yes yes he was he was the back then he was the Moscow correspondent for NPR and that's what very cool it was very cool it was like a dream job he had wanted to be a foreign correspondent his whole life but grew up into the, the industry as they were closing a lot of foreign bureaus and so there weren't a lot of options so when that opened it wasn't a country I'd ever anticipated living in but the reality was you know often it was either a war zone or you know the folks in Italy don't give up the Italy Post very often, it turns out. So I was like, okay, we're gonna go on an adventure. And um, we did in two thousand and nine. And it was definitely a trip that uh, yeah, changed a lot of things for me. But the biggest challenge was I I couldn't work while we were there. So he had this cool job, but I couldn't get a visa, I didn't speak Russian, and after my, you know, Spanish, you know, study abroad experience, I thought I was really adaptable. I thought Oh, I just go with the culture. I'm easy. I didn't realize how challenging Russia would be for me and, you know, how little English was spoken then and um, what not working would feel like because I had always worked. I even thought I could bartend at an Irish bar. Like, there's an Irish bar everywhere in the world. I can do that. But even there, you had to speak Russian at a, you know, a a conversational pace. And I couldn't. Um, So what I ended up doing was just following my husband around. (laughs) It was really fun for a while. And like my friends would go like, oh, you're so you're so lucky, you're just traveling, you're not working. But you know, there's always too much of a good thing. And I think eventually, I started to really like miss working. And we don't have kids we didn't have so we didn't have kids then. And I just really didn't feel like myself after a while I felt sort of feel like I lost myself a little bit. And that was I'm very independent. I didn't expect to kind of like follow someone else's career i expected to have my own um so i had a lot of time to soul search while we were running around and again super grateful for the experience i went to countries like kazakhstan and belarus and places that you're not going to use your two weeks of you know blessed american vacation to be like i'm going to go to belarus for two weeks no you're probably not i'm sure someone is but (laughs) most people are not and so but we got to go there because my husband was covering a presidential election if that's what you can call it we won't get into politics here, but it, you know, that, that isn't really an election. But anyway, you know, so I learned a lot about the world. But then it was the, the the end of our trip in the end of 2011, when David was being brought back to host Morning Edition for NPR, that we were we were, it came. It was like, OK, now's the time. So you have to decide what you're doing with your life. You have no real applicable work experience for three years. Who just wants a girl that followed her husband around to all these cool places? What are you gonna do? And I was like, that's it. This is, it's now, like later is now. And we're gonna do this. And it was a trip specifically on the Trans-Siberian Railroad that I had my pure epiphany moment. That was like, you have no choice. You're going back and you're opening a restaurant. But it really was after a seven sixty five 65 hours on a train in Siberia in December, snow covered little houses and birch trees and like exactly the scene that you think, think Anna Karenina, like you're not wrong. And I had this moment and I was
0: like, that's it. That's what I'm doing. And it put the fire under my ass, so to speak, to just really go back and do it. Oh, I love that. I, Rose, I relate to all this because I had a similar situation when I first moved to the States that I followed my husband and I didn't have a visa to work for three years. Oh, my God.
1: It's exactly the same. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so I went a little bit crazy, even though I didn't have the the language barrier stuff. But like, you don't realize how much identity and career for many people are very much intertwined. So, yeah, I relate that. But sometimes I think you have to be like that experience obviously pushed you to a point where you were ready to take this huge step to set up your own business. And maybe you wouldn't have done that if you'd have been like working in the Irish bar or, you know, just doing something. Yes, that's that's
1: what my husband likes to say, too. Like as we were like fighting many, many times over this issue. um, Now it all comes back to but you probably wouldn't have done the restaurant if it wasn't for Russia. So can you forgive me for those three years? Because, you know, I'm also Mediterranean blood through and through. Like I was freezing. I was miserable. (laughs) I was like, you know, the places we were going were so cold and snowy all the time. But I also grew up in patriarchal cultures, right? Like I love my parents, but I had a very traditional, very at times, my dad will never listen to this. So I'm just going to tell you misogynistic, you know, (laughs) upbringing where I was constantly fighting against these cultural norms of like women are meant to get married and have babies and not do anything else. And while they were in favor of college and education, it was like you're going to do that to be smart enough to find a husband. I mean, they were, that was what I grew up in. So I was fighting that my entire life. And then I show up in Moscow and I'm like, oh, I remember I was cooking dinner one night because I was queen of the dinner party. I was like channeling my restaurant needs into dinner parties. Cause what else was I going to do? <laughs> and I'm cooking these elaborate meals. And I remember I have like literally have a chicken in my hands and the phone is on my ear and I'm calling my husband in his office, like, honey, what do you want for dinner? And I'm looking at this chicken and it was the moment that it hit me. I was like, that's it. You're the housewife. You were exactly what you your parents raised you to be. And that's when I lost it. I was like, okay, this is this is not sustainable. <laughs> so we got through it. It was really hard. It was really beautiful. It's one of those, you know, total polarities. It just, and it, it did. It did put me over the edge of you can do this. This is what you really, really want. And I think for so long, I thought it couldn't be a career. And I think too many of us in hospitality do that sometimes. We think like it's temporary. You're just going to serve tables for side money or whatever. But it's actually not. Like if it's your real, your real passion, you shouldn't be afraid of it. And, you, you know, there are many, many more ways to actually make a career and make a living out of it. And I, I'm super proud of that. And I try to, you know, encourage a lot of other women to do it. If you are kind of in charge of everything, you don't have to always work those crazy unhealthy hours. Like you, you, can, you can control it to some extent. I mean, how
0: old were you when you set up Compass Rose? It opened when I was 34. Okay. Is it quite common for, I mean, I don't I don't know anything about the industry, but is it quite common for a woman of 34 to set up her own restaurant? Or is that quite unusual?
1: As an owner, it's pretty unusual. I'd say at least I'm only speaking for DC. Um, I don't have a lot. I, at the time, didn't have a lot of peers. You know, I'm, you know, on the board of the Restaurant Association. I'll go to meetings and it's still all men around the table. And then like a handful of us women, but that is not to take away from the women that are there are working incredibly hard and I feel really grateful to have them. Um, we have quite a, a tight-knit community in DC where everybody helps each other, especially other female owners. We have a co- especially during COVID, we had like 10, I was on 10 different text chains with women just trying to figure out what the hell we were supposed to be doing, you know? Um, so it, it is, while it's still rare, we, do, we are, those of us that do it are very supportive of each other, but no, 34 is still young. I mean, I had to constantly, you know, correct people when they asked for the owner and I would walk over when a guest would ask for the owner. Very rarely at first did anybody think I was the owner. And you know, they're looking for a man. They're looking for someone older. It was a lot of there were a lot of challenges in that. And it was frustrating. But yeah, it's still a problem in the industry that we're we're working on.
0: Well, good for you. And it it really was a big hit. On the website it says something which I really love. We pride ourselves on being what we call armchair tasters, which is our take on the armchair traveler, a genre of literature movies that takes you on a trip to an exotic locale without leaving the comfort of your own home. Love the idea of an armchair taster. Tell us more about what that means to you.
1: <laughs> that was
0: actually, I had a, a former member of my
1: staff who introduced me to that um, that ex- term, but it was so applicable for what we were doing, especially at Compass Rose at my first restaurant. we That was the one I opened when we got back. And the first menu was truly a collection of dishes that David and I had collected on our travels. So all these 30 countries that we went to in the three years that we were living there, we realized our favorite memories, our most significant memories tied into food. You know, we could remember like that time we got lost in that alley or that time that we traveled to this whole country just to go to this restaurant. You know, it tended to just go back to food. So that's what the menu was originally created to represent. And it turns out that in DC especially, you have a lot of people who have traveled, lived or grew up in other parts of the world and can't go there all the time. And then especially during COVID, nobody could go anywhere and it was so comforting to come into a space that in braced all these other cultures and tried to bring them into a room and make you feel the feelings of memory associated with taste and smell that would bring back cool travels, or in some cases, inspire travels. You know, I went to countries, as I said, like a lot of Americans don't go to. The Republic of Georgia is one of my greatest obsessions. I learned all about it and traveled there. I've traveled there now seven times. Um, wow. But my first trip was from Russia because it was such a common, you know, cuisine in Russia, but I had never had it before. And when I discovered Georgian food, I'm like, what, how has this been hiding from me? I don't understand. And wine that's like blows your mind and they've been making it for 8,000 years. And I didn't know that. So we traveled to Georgia and it was just mind blowing. The people and the hospitality were so special. And so it really reminded me of Lebanese culture. It was like the, the most welcoming country I'd ever been to outside of Lebanon. And I really want to bring that energy into the spaces. So, you know, the armchair traveler is really like taking that hospitality and that excitement of travel and, you know, putting it into, you know, a space, a little space and a little street in DC. But I, you know, I'm so rewarded when I walk around and I hear people talking about a trip they had where they had that dish, or when someone tells me, I'm going to go to Georgia now. I'm obsessed with this food and this one, and that has happened multiple times. And it makes me so happy. It means like that. Not only did you, you know, you you were adventuresome enough to try this dish, but then inspired enough to go to that country. And so, yeah, sometimes you have to be armchair and you you can't leave like during COVID, and and you have to bring the flavors to you. But then I hope what it does is
0: inspire you to get out there as soon as you can and, and go somewhere new. I love that. I just learned about what's the Georgian dish that's like kind of a bread. With an egg in the middle. But cheese. That cool. Yeah, and cheese. Yes. Hajapuri? Yes. I was looking at it on Instagram the other day and I was like, that's all I want to eat now. <laughs> I need to find a restaurant near me that serves this. Oh, yeah. I don't, where are you? Where are you located? Well, so I'm actually roaming the country right now doing the remote work thing, but I'm in uh, Santa Fe currently.
1: Oh, I don't know. I was like, of all the places, I don't know if I can help you yes. in Santa Fe. But um, yeah, no, there's, there's definitely a lot more of it, especially New York, Portland. LA and and DC now but it's an amazing dish. And I actually sold, fun fact, the first year the Compass Rose was open. And this is less than a 2,000-square-foot restaurant, okay? So we have at that time 60 seats maybe. I sold 10,000 in the first year. So it was like every night we sell between 30 and 40 of them. It's crazy. This dish was so popular with people. And, you know, it's also very specific to regions of Georgia. So the one you're talking about is the one that I, that I make. Um, it's from the Black Sea Coast near Batumi. That's the region. But it turns out that it's very different depending on what part of Georgia you're in. If you're in the mountains or if you're in Tbilisi or if you're in the southeast, they make it different everywhere. So there's like 40 different versions of Haji But I think the one that you're talking about because of Instagram, probably, honestly, probably because of Instagram is the most popular and very, very popular after eight years at my restaurant. (laughs) So, yeah, it has staying power. It has staying power
0: it looks delicious I have to try it sometime I feel like you could have chosen so many different trips for your trip that changed me because I also know that you um you set up your second restaurant in DC called Maydan, and that was like three years after Compass Rose so not very long you were like I'm not busy enough I think I need I think I need a new restaurant. I know I
1: still wonder <laughs>
0: But the, it embraces cuisines like from Lebanon, stuff you learned from your mum, but also, you know, North Africa and the Middle East. Yeah. And I know you took your whole team on this epic trip through that entire region before the restaurant launched. Yeah. What did you learn? What did you see? What did you bring back from that trip?
1: Yeah, I'm, like, I look at it whimsically now because now that there's two restaurants, we can't go away that long anymore. But we were able to, <laughs> we were able to swing it when it was only one. It was so important. Yes, there are many trips. It was hard to just choose one. So thank you for letting me talk about at least two, because there, there have (laughs) been so many, like I've been fortunate to have many life changing trips. This was another one, you know, growing up with this food, I understood it, but it's also like, uh, you clearly can tell like my soul food, but that is really hard to teach. You can't just teach the soul part, right? You can teach the recipes, but it takes going there and feeling the things and meeting the people. I think really understand it. And I opened with um, some chefs who were not familiar with with food from that region at the time. And so I, that was just it. I mean, travel, I, I truly believe is so necessary, you know, to understanding anything, you know, people, cultures, we know that, but There was no way they had to travel and they had to see and feel what I was trying to explain. And so we charted out this really cool trip um, five countries. We went to Morocco, Tunisia, Lebanon, Georgia, and Turkey and um, brought, you know, fine tuned recipes that like were family recipes of mine, a lot of Lebanese bias there probably. Um, But we definitely learned a lot everywhere that we went. And that formed the first menu that we opened Made On with. And really, while three years was not a huge amount of time, I. Was determined to have fire. And when Compass Rose, it's street food from around the world, is kind of how we categorize it. I wanted to cook outside, and the health department wouldn't let me. It was like a battle for a long time, and I lost it. So the restaurant's enclosed, but with mine on, I was like, the next restaurant I will have a fire. What ended up happening is I was showed a space that I was able to put fire in the middle of. So it's inside, but everything is cooked on live fire. Because the other thing about that region is people still do cook outside a lot. We do a tandoori-style oven where we make bread on live fire on the sides of like a clay oven. We actually practiced that in Georgia for five days with women in their backyards who were making bread that way just for their families. And you know, it's one of the oldest. These are the oldest civilizations in the world. And so I thought we were paying the greatest homage to the culture by cooking it on fire. And obviously the flavors of the fire is amazing. But, you know, culturally,
0: I thought it was really important to do it that way. That's wonderful. I love that. I feel like whenever I speak to chefs or anyone in the food industry, they're always like, if you really want to understand a region's food better, you need to be hanging out with the grandmas. <laughs> it's all grandmas.
1: Our hashtag for the trip was cooking with grandmas. That's all we did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> i mean there was and it was my grandmother mother and aunts that taught me to cook so it was really important we didn't go to any restaurant i know like a lot of times chef stage and like really famous restaurants and everything that is not the case at all there are, some of these places barely you know really have a developed restaurant culture and this woman in tunisia she was my favorite we were she was writing an in- English language cookbook, and that's how I got connected to her, and she welcomed us into her home. Um, She's a grandma and a mom, and she said, you're so smart for not going to the restaurant. She's like, the men work there, and they don't know what they're doing. We know what we're we're doing, and she was so right. And so we only cooked with women um, the entire trip. It was really powerful and really meaningful to be welcomed into people's homes, their most sacred space. And often, we met a lot of women who get no acclaim for what they do, you know, feeding these huge families. So they just looked at us like, you, you want to learn? And we're like, yeah, we want to learn from you. And it was just this beautiful experience of like sharing secrets and stories and history. And it was, it was incredibly powerful.
0: How did you find these women?
1: A lot of connections from people I knew in D.C. and with um, living abroad, I, a lot of friends that still had, you know, different postings around the world and helped us connect to people. And sometimes we just met people really organically in the streets or in the markets and they're so welcoming they would just invite us to their
0: homes so it was it was a range of of ways what a cool experience i'm so jealous of that that's amazing
1: i miss it. i wish i could do it again but like i said five weeks now oh lord it's it's a lot harder (laughs) to get away
0: Well, let's move on to the trip that you chose, that you chose. I know we've already talked about like several trips. but oh, sorry.
1: The trip Thank that you, that you for listening. For it's my favorite thing to talk about. So thank you for listening.
0: <laughs> um, was a trip back to Lebanon in 2019 with your two aunts. Yeah. As you were preparing to travel, did you have any kind of an inkling that this would be such a meaningful trip for you? I knew
1: it was going to be special. I don't think I fully understood how emotional it would probably be. You know, I didn't go back to Lebanon as a kid because there was a civil war my entire childhood. You know, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s. And my mom's generation was one of like, you're American. We left because we were poor. Like, why would you go back? You know, so they and then they didn't have a ton of money. So there really was no even when there wasn't a war, it was very expensive to bring a big family back to Lebanon every year. So. We didn't grow up with a tradition of going back there. I started going as an adult and connecting with distant relatives and, and friends that are there, friends that I know through food and friends that I know through my family. So I try to go a couple times a year, but I have two aunts who at the time, I have to fact check this, but I think I'm 72 or 73. They're twins. So they're the same age. They're my mom's Aww. sisters right after her. And they wanted so desperately to go because they had grown up entirely in the United States. And- but we're so tied to this, you know, culture, but through an American experience. And they wanted so, so much to go back. And they're like, can you, would you bring us? And because they're not used to traveling in that part of the world. And I was like, of course. My one aunt had actually never been out of the United States. She'd never been anywhere. Other in America. So her first country was Lebanon in 2019. My other aunt had traveled quite a bit through work. Um, but Lebanon still is it's very different and, and super special. And there's a lot of crying, there was a lot of visiting, you know, relatives and cooking together. And it was incredibly special to see that connection over the years. Um, no matter how far how distant they were, you know, you feel so connected when you're there. Like you almost understand yourself better. And to see that in Women their age, after so many years um, of hearing about this magical place, cooking its food and keeping its traditions alive in America, they were actually there. And it was incredibly powerful.
0: One of my questions is actually going to be, you know, do you think that we all have an innate connection to the country that we're from, even if we've never been? You know, like, is there something on a cellular level that we just recognize this as home?
1: You know, I, I, in my experience, and that obviously is not everyone's, I see that over and over again. I mean, even my husband, who is of Eastern European Jewish descent, not, you know, didn't even come from a big food family, you know, traditionally not very religious, much more culturally Jewish. Living in that region and traveling Eastern Europe, the connection he felt, and he wasn't even anticipating feeling it. And they came over even longer ago than my family did. And um, he felt so connected. And it was really cool to watch him have that experience. And then... um, I knew it from the very first time I went to Lebanon. I'm like, oh, this is who I am. This is this is where I feel belonging. And it is a really, it's a really cool thing to experience. Of course, you know, you know, we know we're American first and and we you know very much grew up that way and these American hubs of, you know, Lebanese community and like the Toledo, Detroit area um, is where all my family stayed. And so I, that's where we, you know, there's tons of bakeries and tons of Lebanese bakeries, hello, meat shops, like all the things that we were used to. Um, We would just have to travel to get them and then bring them back to our hometown. But um, that I knew there was something I felt connected, but it wasn't until I went to Lebanon that I really understood what I was looking for. It's kind of like, I didn't know I was looking for it until I found
0: it. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Mm, totally and since you had that experience when you were building the itinerary for your aunts how did you structure the trip to make it the most impactful for them
1: oh we went back to the family villages i mean that was the most important part like and we're not from beirut so while we did go to beirut um we got out quickly to go to both my grandmother's village in the southern bacaw valley and then um slightly north of tripoli is where my grandfather's from and we had, you know, cooking with everyone was also interesting. And I know this is not a food podcast and I'm talking about, po- I'm talking about food too much, but even seeing the differences in the regional cooking between where my grandfather's from and where my grandmother's from, um, was really eye opening. even to my aunts. Like, Oh, that's why we do this. <laughs> you know, like that we literally, I heard that like 20 times, like, that's why we use this or, Oh, that's why we stopped doing this. And it was just like, so eye opening when we were actually there. And they're both still like tiny villages with like a very tight knit culture where everyone's still related. And um, yeah, it's really cool. A lot of people have, you know, relatives in the States and go back and forth now. But yeah, it's still technically a village.
0: And you guys still had relatives there? Yeah. Yeah. In both. Had you met them before? Or was this the first time your aunts were meeting them? I had met them all before, but my
1: aunts had not. Yeah, it was the first time for them.
0: That's so interesting. How did they feel about that?
1: Oh, same just like so much hugging and care. and that's the thing too lebanese people like they all already even if you're not related to them almost act like you're related <laughs> like they're so lebanese people are so warm and welcoming they're like oh you're a friend of my cousin's so you're a cousin you know like that's <laughs> yeah. the kind of the thing and um so to actually know that you have a bloodline connection i mean it's overwhelming to like you're welcomed in you're fed and there's nothing that you can't have like and you actually Sometimes regret asking for like even mentioning you like something because before you know it someone's bought it for you and giving it to you, and you're like, "No, I didn't mean I liked your robe, but I didn't mean please give me your robe, but like they they would, and so I think that was just like an overwhelmingly joyful surprise, you know, for my aunts to be welcomed like that
0: after so many generations, you know you know, and not having been there as a kid, so it must have been so cool for you to experience it through their eyes in a really fresh way and to see them learning about these dishes and having these experiences and meeting these people.
1: Oh, I felt so lucky to be along for the ride. They keep thinking me and I'm like, "No, no, no, that was really special for me." They, you know, grew up in Detroit and then suburban Detroit as they got older and, you know, had never even been to places that are structured like that with like mountain villages and and in a region that's a little bit unstable too. So there were times that it's, you know, a lot of times they were told it was unsafe. So to go there and see like people have a normal life here, you know, the misconceptions that we have in the States, especially about Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, like, you know, all we've heard is the negativity on the news. And so to overcome that and and show up there and see like, this is just everyday people. They're like us. And, you know, of course things happen, but unfortunately we have gun violence in the U S that they don't have there, but yes, there are, you know, conflicts that, can come up suddenly and are very scary. So it was like just the cultural understanding, both of their background and of like modern day was it was really cool to to experience that
0: through them. You're right. It is such a shame that we don't have more, that it's not more accessible and that more people are not dying to go to the Middle East because there's so much history and tradition and culture there. Like Iran is really high up on my on my list. And obviously it can be some of it can be like tricky to navigate in terms of visas and stuff, but I really hope that people do go out of their way to visit these places because I think there's so much value in that.
1: And that's honestly what I'm trying to do with the restaurants. Like it's Mm. the more especially pulling from countries that people are less familiar with, like Georgia. People are like, isn't that Russia? I'm like, no, it's not Russia. Russia stole them for a little while and then they fought back, you know. Um, (laughs) And what I really, really hope is that we make people as welcome in our space as the women who welcomed us into their homes made us. And that is like, and food is the thing that binds us, right? When you see like, to me, that's always your entry point. Like it was educational in my family, you know, to my community as kids, like that helped them better understand us and see us as less foreign in a way. I feel like bringing this food, even to Washington, you know, is is international and educated as so much of the city is there's still so many places they don't understand. And, and honestly, conflicts that people have really strong opinions about that divide them because actually they know almost too much about the conflicts, right? So we'll have, especially in a Middle Eastern restaurant that, you know, I like to say our inspiration is from Tangiers to Tehran and then Batumi to Beirut. So if you think of that, then add on Oman because I was able to go to Oman in 2018 and it's amazing. So we extended to the Arabian Peninsula a little bit more. Even the name Maidan, the reason I chose it (laughs) is all travel related too. I discovered it in Ukraine, in Kiev. Um, David was covering another questionable presidential election in 2010. And I was in Kiev in the winter and everyone kept talking about meeting at Maidan, meeting at the Maidan. And I'm like, what are they, what is this? And it's not on the map, I don't understand. It's cause it's actually called Independence square, but generically it's called the Maidan because the word translates into like a square or a gathering place, like an open space that people come together, but it's used in Farsi. It's used in Arabic. The root is Arabic. It's even used in Hindi. So here are all these different cultures that on their face look so different, but actually use this word that to mean the same exact thing and maybe pronounce it differently. And that's how the food we serve is. It's the same, but different. Right. And we're all the same, but different. And I think that's the bigger message that I think travel shows us. And that's what the restaurant is trying to say. Like, it's not so different for today, Washington. Let's not fight about politics. Like, let's just like come in the door, trance to these other places um eat food together be vulnerable and get over our differences because at the end of the day we all love the same things we love food we love family you know that's what that's what it's all about so that's the bigger statement
0: we're trying to make through food i was going to say that concept feels especially relevant to dc <laughs> yeah. no it is especially relevant that's
1: how i got this way you know because i have this policy background but you can't just yeah. talk about food you know food and politics overlap a lot and there's there's a And, you know, we really wanted to create a space across borders. And so we rarely, like, connect even... We'll tell people where we learn the dish or who we learn the dish from, but I don't even like to classify it to a
0: specific country because so many people in the region make it. They just make it a little bit different. Do you think this trip with your aunts was also really special because it was right before the pandemic struck? And we didn't know at the time, you know, that we were all going to be grounded and that we wouldn't be able to see friends and family. Oh, well, let that be the lesson of today. Like of travel, right? Like, don't
1: hesitate, because you just absolutely don't know what's going to happen. And that is, I can't tell you how many times we've said that to each other. Thank God we went in 2019. But that was a trip they had talked about for years and years. And finally, were are brave enough to just take the step and do it. And it's a much different place now. I just went back in um, September. And unfortunately, it's very different than it was in 2019. Suffering from the economy, the explosion from COVID, it's not it it will be okay. Um, But it is very rough right now. And I wouldn't have wanted to show it to my aunts the way it is right now with no electricity, you know, for multiple hours a day. It's just, it's much harder now to travel. Um, You still should. I went for the grape harvest that a bunch of amazing farmers still plowed through and harvested grapes under crazy circumstances, um, but they're still doing it. And so don't be afraid to travel there. Just know it's a little bit harder than it used to be. Um, And for my, you know, 70 year-old aunts, it definitely wouldn't have been as comfortable. So they constantly are saying, "Yes, thank you.
0: If we saw it before, we were completely frozen." Oh, I love that. And how do you feel like this trip impacted or influenced your life and work as it is today? It just gives me more of a boost, you know, like especially
1: after COVID, like we got really beat down, right? It was a terrible time for all of us and especially for restaurants, and there were days that it was like, let's just there were days you felt like quitting. I mean, very honestly, no matter how much I loved it, there were really hard days where I was like, you know, it was a good run. Let's just call it, you know, like, cause it was so miserable and we were so unhappy and we weren't creating what we, we, we tore down what we created. And then we just created a thing to stay alive. That was not the intent of, you know, either of the spaces, but things that keep me going on days like that were how meaningful that trip was and how meaningful food is to our community We were, you know, able to work with World Central Kitchen and do meals to the city right at the very beginning of COVID when people couldn't leave their homes. We helped them put thousands of meals out. And the power of food that Jose Andreas has been, you know, promoting and showing everyone in these disaster zones um, was a powerful thing to be part of. And so we remember, like, food is cultural understanding. Food is life-saving and is dignity for a lot of people. So what we do is incredibly important. So when I think about the reaction my aunts had to making food with their relatives in the place that they've connected to but couldn't access for so many years. Yeah, I can't give up. They all my family worked really hard to get here so a girl could have a restaurant when she was 34 and and share, you know, what they worked so hard to teach me with with strangers. So I do feel that ancestral pressure on my shoulders
0: and I, you know, I'm going to I'm going to make them proud and and you know, I'm not going to give up too easily. So <laughs> Oh, well, Rose, thank you so much. Your adventurous life is very inspiring. And you've also made me really hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't had lunch yet either. I was like, oh my
1: gosh, I am hungry. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my travel stories. I love to talk about travel more than anything else. So anytime, give me a call. Oh, um, Where can people find you on the internet? Um, I have been terrible with Instagram lately, but it is just Rose Prevett, um on Instagram. I'm not really active on Twitter at all. So don't go there. Just go to Instagram and then Made on Encompass Rose's webpages also have access to all of our social media presence. And if you're in Washington on your, on your remote journey, please let me know. I would love to feed you. Oh, I appreciate that.
0: And before you go, I'd love to do a quick fire round. Oh, no, that's scary. But yes, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> What's the one experience every person should have in their lifetime? I mean, it's too cheesy to say,
1: but coming from the Midwest, there's a lot of people that haven't been to the ocean. And I say that, no, that's the true thing even today. And I would say no matter what, every single human deserves to find an ocean to put their toes into and feel the power of the sea.
0: That's a lovely answer. I think about it when people tell me that. I'm always amazed, but I actually do hear it more than you, you would think. Oh, it's so soothing being by the ocean. Although I did discover on this trip, (laughs) Lake Michigan. Isn't it? And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Is this not the ocean?
1: (laughs) The Great Lakes, they are very impressive. I'm glad you Mm. discovered them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They do live up to their name. Yes, yes, they are Great Lakes. That's so funny, yes.
1: (laughs) Growing up in that region, I I know all too well about them, yes. (laughs) What do you never, ever travel without? I am very spiritual, so I have all kinds of travel trinkets, but I have a icon, a Georgian Orthodox icon that a monk in a cave in southern Georgia gave me and I carry it with me. I don't even know what it says because it's in Georgian. Um but I carry it with me everywhere. It's in in my travels for a little extra safety and security because I believe that's what he meant when he gave it to me. I couldn't understand him, but that's what I'm going to go with. <laughs>
0: you need to get that translated i'm
1: a little scared but i my mom was syrian orthodox so i'm at least familiar with like a little bit of the iconography and and the religion so i know it's probably not bad um i was clear on the fact that he wouldn't let me sleep in the caves he's like like boys only i'm like but i really want to hang out with you and he's like absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) not overnight but here are some gifts and now please go away like that i did understand i was not allowed to sleep in the caves
0: oh my god that's amazing Um, What's your top tip for finding the best places to eat when you travel?
1: Oh, easy. I mean, asking the locals, right? But let's be more specific. The local server or bartender, whoever, you know, the one place you do find, even if it's like, you know, popular, then ask them where they go. Always ask your bartender, or your
0: server where to eat. And that's where you should go. Good tip. If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? I know you've already heard so much about it, but
1: I have to say that I I would probably teleport to Georgia. It is truly a magnificent place. I can't speak highly enough about it that if you get the opportunity, it's magical, it's mystical. It's, it's, it's hard, but easy. It's, it's, it's just not developed enough that, you know, a lot of things are still happening there the way they were happening 100 years ago. And it's some of it's frozen in time in the best way. Um, but it's also very forward thinking, um, especially with the wine industry, um, as far as their growth and how they want to connect with the rest of the world. And it's I would say don't miss it. I would teleport there any time of day um, for a glass of wine and a Haji and, you know, a good
0: laugh with the friend. So, yeah. It's also one of the places that has remained open to international tourists pretty much all through the pandemic. So yes, and they're very right now. They're
1: very <laughs> welcoming to everyone. They're especially welcoming to Americans. We have a great relationship. You know how some parts of the world, we're not always popular. Um, in Georgia, we are. So <laughs>
0: that is there a podcast show or book you would recommend for a long journey? I
1: did get through Anna Karenina probably only because I was on the Trans-Siberian, <laughs> because it's very long. Um, but I did take the Trans-Siberian from Moscow to Vladivostok. And of course, it also felt appropriate to be on a Russian train. But when you have no internet, no phone, no nothing, um, you definitely need books. And I would say to Anna Karenina on the Trans-Siberian Railroad if you get the chance.
0: Top tip for traveling harmoniously with family alcohol is that, the
1: answer? <laughs> is that the rest not what you're supposed to say rose um i but yeah i still believe that and car snacks my family Don't get didn't, angry yeah we were four kids we didn't fly very often um so we drove everywhere and as as kids so i would say if it wasn't for the the amazing car snacks again giving my parents credit they wouldn't stop for fast food. That was unheard of. Even when we were driving from Ohio to my grandfather's in New Jersey, that's a long drive. It's a really long drive with four kids in a van. Um, but we had homemade food the entire way. Of course, we only wanted cheeseburgers from McDonald's, but we weren't allowed to have those. Um, so we ate great sandwiches. And so
0: I'd say that was probably the thing my parents did every time we started fighting was just threw food at us. <laughs> Got us through it. <laughs>
1: that's
0: good. Um, and where is next on your bucket list?
1: Ooh, I. Have been dying to go to India. I have not gone to India, and it drives me insane. From like a food perspective, a culture perspective, and everything perspective, I know it still be a minute before I can do that trip. Going to need some more time for COVID things to you know so to subside. But once they do, yes, I would love to book my ticket for India.
0: Mm, I love Indian food I love everything about India really but Indian food is so good
1: (laughs) no me and you both it's like ridiculous especially for a street food lover they have amazing street food culture Um, it's insane I haven't been there so that's next on the list
0: amazing well thank you Rose it's been a pleasure it's
1: such a delight this is like the best Thursday afternoon thank you so much
0: thank you for listening to this week's episode I hope you liked it We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full-time-travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.